How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I'm Gary Horde. Hey, I'm Justin Bishop, and we're joined today by our best friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, Thanks for having me. I don't, know, I don't know why I felt like introducing you that way. Our but, hetero yeah. life mate, Todd oh, Davis. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, man, guys. Wrap it in. Strap it in? Is that, is that the way that phrase goes? I don't know what you were going for, honestly. It's, stra- <laughs> it's, strap, it, it's strap it on. Strap, strap it on, strap guys. It on. We're, in, we're in for the long run on this one. We're talking about one of the biggest movies we've ever talked about. Uh, this is on up there with maybe Night of the Living Dead and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of the most iconic films that we've talked about on the show so far. Oh, yeah, yeah so part two. We're pegging those series. ear holes today, baby. That's right. Our series on Dan O'Bannon, which I have renamed, by the way, is no longer Hollywood Secret Weapon because I felt like that was an inappropriate title. It never really sat well with me because here's the thing. He would be considered Hollywood Secret Weapon if Hollywood you know, were properly using his talents right uh he was like the guy they brought in but he's the guy that they kind of ignored Mm. dan o'bannon was he never really got his due which is why we're trying to give him his due so i've renamed the series the unsung legacy of dan o'bannon i think that's a little more accurate don't you yeah yeah, and it's a little more poetic you know i like it thanks todd yeah i like it too Thank you, Gary. I appreciate your approval. I just, Todd, I Todd's approval, approval, approval is more important. Well, um, <laughs> Let's be honest. Todd's approval has never been important here. <laughs> that is a bummer. Todd, you're an important aspect of this show, oh, whether you believe it or not. That's sweet of you to say. Thank you. Otherwise, it's just me and Gary being nerds the whole time. <laughs> Talk, but we need we need someone to bounce off of, someone that's going to challenge our views sometimes. Someone... <laughs> okay (laughs) i'll be that guy (laughs) all right so let's get into it guys so uh last week we talked about dark star uh john carpenter's debut film also dan o'bannon's debut film so during the filming of that film of dark star before their partnership had been disbanded as we discussed in detail last week dan o'bannon and john carpenter actually talked about making a similar sci-fi film uh, a story set within a spaceship where a crew discovers an alien threat inspired just like kind of like dark star was by the thing from another world a film that they both loved growing up and it was as dan o'bannon described this project as they kind of discussed it he said it was like the same story but in a different light it was this a similar concept but he wanted to make people scared instead of make people laugh and o'bannon actually worked on it he wrote the first act of the screenplay and the plan was that this time o'bannon would be the director of course none of this happened after they they essentially the, the band broke up, <laughs> the, the Carpenter O'Bannon band broke up. And, and Carpenter actually said, hey, you can, you, you just take this, you know. But that half-finished screenplay kind of stuck, O'Bannon kind of 
held on to it, you know, and it's one that he would later rework with a writer named Ron Shusset and went through several iterations and had multiple titles along the way. But when it was finally completed and released in 1979, it would be known as simply Alien. Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Mother's intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. You got us up to check it out. Human. Oh, no. What happened to Kane? Something has attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What the hell is that? Oh, we gotta get it off him. He's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. It's got to be a way of killing it. Still don't understand what you're dealing with, doing. Perfect. Well done. There's no fun story that I could find, and maybe you did different on why it suddenly was called Alien instead of Star Beast, which I know you're going to bring up. Like, yeah, just just so as we get to that, people know it. Just seems like he just saw Alien a bunch in his script from everything that's I could find. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, they, just so, got, they just get they were looking at the script, and first of all, Star Beast is a dumb name. Uh, it sounds like a Roger Corman movie, which this almost uh, was yeah i was into. just kind of <laughs> but some some sort of offshoot of D or something yeah but yeah basically o'bannon just they were going over their screenplay and just kept seeing the word alien 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 so they're like hey this is a noun and it's an adjective you know let's just and for somehow no movie had ever been called just alien so that's yeah that's where it came from and so o'bannon had never really been thrilled with that beach ball alien from dark star even though you know it was funny uh, it was a it was a funny gag. That's why they put it in the film to begin with, because they saw somebody walking with a beach ball and the idea of that being the alien made them laugh. <laughs> but the experience really left him with wanting to do an alien that looked real. So meanwhile, around the same time, Ronald Shusset, who was a fellow burgeoning screenwriter, he was working on a project of his own. He had optioned a Philip K. Dick short story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale a story that became the basis for a film that would eventually be released as Total Recall yeah. about a decade and a half later. So Shusette had been, he had, he had actually seen Dark Star. And I think I think Shusette was a student at UCLA. Not He wasn't at USC, but he was a film student at UCLA, I believe. Uh, but he had seen Dark Star and he had been impressed with it. So he contacted O'Bannon, hoping that the two of them could one day collaborate. And they started talking in between the two projects between, you know, O'Bannon's alien, you know, killer alien screenplay and the total recall screenplay. They eventually chose to work on O'Bannon's idea because they thought it would be cheaper and easier to produce. I, yeah. Get that low hanging fruit while you can. So at that point, O'Bannon had about uh, 29 pages of, of screenplay written and it was actually called Memory at the time, which I, I don't know why it was called Memory. I could not find any information on what 
that word had to do with the screenplay. Uh, maybe because the, it goes back to his father taking Polaroids in the woods. <laughs> maybe. VTs. Maybe. Uh, but those 29 pages contained what would eventually become the opening scenes of Alien. You had a crew of astronauts that were awakened from cryosleep to find out that their voyage had been interrupted because they'd received a signal from a nearby mysterious planetoid. So they investigate, and when they, they go down to the surface, their ship breaks down, and that was kind of the extent of it. Uh, he didn't really have a clear idea of who or what the actual alien threat was going to be at this point. But before he could really flesh this idea out any further, O'Bannon accepted the offer to go work on uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a project that would take him to Paris for six months. We discussed that a little bit last week. Yeah. And as we discussed last week, that project eventually fell through, but it did introduce O'Bannon to several artists who would influence his later work, uh, namely Chris Foss, uh, Jean Girard, a.k.a. Mobius, and most notably probably as H.R. Giger. Yeah, as, as, as tough a experience as that probably was for him, it probably made up for it on the back end just with all the networking. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he would work with uh, several of these artists again over the course of his career. So H.R. Giger, a little bit of background on this guy if you're not aware. He likes a, penises. He does. <laughs> he uh, does not like snakes and does not like worms, though is terrified of them. <laughs> he is. He talks yeah. about it in interviews. It's very weird because he's a scary looking dude. Looks like a fucking vampire. Uh, <laughs> but he, ta- he talks about like worms. Just he's got like a <laughs> intense fear of them. I, don't I remember very, I, I was watching a what a guy. Yeah. One of the commentaries John Hurt talks about uh, seeing him. He's like, he's very goth. It's like he just even at the time, like he, he's you know, this is more accepted now, but at the time it was really weird. He was like he never knew anybody except for like one other person, and then he met Giger and his girlfriend that were always as wearing as much black as possible yeah. at all yeah. times. Very pale skin, kind of like almost like dark rings around his eyes, like he's part of the Adams family or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh so H.R. Giger was born in Chur, Switzerland in 1940. And he used those early phobias of snakes and worms actually as inspiration for his artwork. So even when he was a young, like up and coming artist, he was using the idea of fear as an inspiration for art. And he moved to Zurich in 1962 and he went to school there. He studied architecture and industrial design. But by 1964, he was uh, creating his first like artwork, his first painting, sculptures, things like that. They were mostly ink drawings and oil paintings at the time. And that quickly led to a solo show. He had his first solo show in 1966. But a little while after that, he discovered the airbrush. And along with it, he kind of discovered his own unique freehand painting style, creating these dark, disturbing, and often highly sexualized biomechanical landscapes that he would become known for. Then after... Uh, his longtime girlfriend, uh, after she died uh, by suicide in 1975, his work took an even darker turn. Uh, these he had, you know, these grotesque monsters with skeletal bodies, giant phallic heads, and he often rendered them in monochromatic colors, lots of grays and blacks, very little, if any, color in any of Giger's work. Now, over the course of his career, Giger published more than 20 books of artwork. Uh, he created sculptures. He designed an entire bar. There's a place called the Giger Bar in Tokyo and opened his own museum uh, in the late 90s. This is fascinating. Go look at pictures of it. But he opened his own museum, I think about 1998. It was housed inside of a castle in the medieval city of Gruyere, Switzerland. So he bought an old medieval castle and turned it into the Giger Museum. 
Of course awesome. he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and his probably his most famous book was published in 1977. It's called Necronomicon. And it was that book that served as the main inspiration for his eventual work on Alien. You hear, you know, the background of what influenced his art. I kind of wish he'd gotten more into, I mean, I know he did some work in the comics industry, but I really wish he'd gotten hooked up with a couple of other uh, writers like, um, yeah, he doesn't seem you know. like the, the um, type to do that type of creative work, like storytelling work Yeah, to me. He just yeah, seems like true. he wants to create uh, images that invoke feelings. Yeah. In people. yeah he's all about the atmosphere and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, Although it would have been really cool to see him work with like, James Obar, Steve Niles, uh, yeah, you know some of those guys. That, that I bet comics couldn't afford him either because yeah, yeah, yeah you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to know his worth, and you know he also worked at yeah. very large scale oh, because wow. he's airbrushing most of the time. Oh, that's so, cool. So the way Dan o- O'Bannon put it, he he said his paintings had a profound effect on me. I'd never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time as beautiful as his work. And so I ended up writing a script about a Giger monster. Nice. He was fascinated by Giger's work. And after meeting him, he found that the two of them, they shared a mutual appreciation for HP Lovecraft. Like uh, O'Bannon, much like John Carpenter grew up loving and idolizing HP Lovecraft. They, they, they both had this and same with Giger. They both had this fascination with, kind of fear of the unknown which is a staple in lovecraft's work mm. yeah and uh i i even read in some places uh from from o'bannon that they, they had the idea what uh with i don't know why i can't talk but like cthulhu being a big source too because they just they like the idea of the uh this thing that's like trapped and like just waiting to be unleashed and so the alien kind of got some inspiration from that that just uh you know, not 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 necessarily the look of Cthulhu, but just Cthulhu's story as he submerged at the bottom of the sea and you never see him. But if he ever escapes, then that's like the dread of mankind. <laughs> yeah, you're yes. fucked if he gets out. Giger's designs for for Dune are incredible. They're they uh, you can you can find a lot of them uh, available online or watch. Uh, like I mentioned last week, watch the film Yodorowsky's Dune. But his brilliant designs couldn't save that movie. Uh, it it nobody wanted to fund it. <laughs> so after Dune collapsed, O'Bannon was left homeless and broke, and ended up having to couch surf to survive. Uh, and eventually, he ended up on the couch of his old friend Ronald Chusset, and the two decided to revive that that memory script that he'd been working on uh, a couple years earlier. And O'Bannon had been stuck on the script. He, like we said, he he had written about twenty nine pages, but he couldn't get past that. So he asked Chusset to take a look at it. And the two, eventually, it became a collaboration. They reworked it a little bit, and they retitled the project Star Beast, and then began to shop it around without much luck at all at first. And Obana would eventually take this early version of the script to Roger Corman. Uh, Corman thought the script was good. He liked it. But he told Obana, he's like, this is going to require a much bigger budget than I can give you. I'm Roger Corman. <laughs> do, you know, do you know how I work? Uh, so he suggested that O'Bannon shop it around to other bigger studios because he thought it really had potential. And he wanted to see if he's like, hey, if you can't get another studio to give you a big budget for it, come back to me. We'll see what we can do and see if we can work on the kind of budget that I would be able to give. Although I am morbidly curious to see what a Roger Corman alien would look like. Oh, there are alien ripoffs that are that are produced by Roger Corman. They're out there. Nice. So, uh, Roger Corman <laughs> liked to uh, really like to to 
let's say riff on popular movies uh, okay. <laughs> and alien is no exception nice so none of the studios that they shop this around to they couldn't really figure out how to do the special effects for the film uh, that was something they couldn't really get their heads around so o'bannon he went back to a second script that he'd been working on uh, this one was about a parasite in space another sci-fi script but a parasite in space it would attach itself to a crew member of the spaceship and which if you've seen alien sounds pretty familiar so he combined elements of these two scripts and reconceptualized the monster from this kind of bizarrely shaped arachnid like spider-like monster to mm. a more human-shaped monster because he's like then we can get a guy in a rubber suit makes sense you should have learned on i guess on a, a dark star that that wasn't necessarily the best direction to go in if you're just looking for a guy in a rubber suit it yeah. can go wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then o'bannon got sidetracked from this project once again this time it was because he received a phone call from none other than george lucas so lucas just like yodorowsky had been impressed with o'bannon's work on dark star and he invited him to help out on a little sci-fi movie he was working on called star wars have we For seen the next have we seen star wars have you guys seen star wars i've heard of it okay all right we'll cover yeah. it at some point okay probably watch this but it's a lesser known one <laughs> so for the next three months o'bannon designed some of the animation on the movie a sort of crude early form of computer generated special effects that included the display that like shows how the torpedoes are able to enter the death star you know that scene on the screen that oh, yeah. was dan o'bannon i mean and this was playing on the kind of effects that, you know, I think Gary talked about it a little bit last week that he had done on Dark Star that had been so innovative. And it was cool. I mean, he got to work on Star Wars. So when we say the unsung legacy of Dan O'Bannon, like so far, Alien hasn't even been made yet. He's already worked with John Carpenter, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, and George Lucas on Star Wars. Nice. Uh, the dude had his hands in a lot of huge projects. You, you'd think he would be a household name, but he's not. And part of it's because he's, uh, I know his, he kind of got fucked over and part of it's because he's kind of difficult to work with as well as we will get into. <laughs> yeah. The conversa the that conversation he had with John Carpenter seemed like enough to get him put on a couple lists yeah, or, ta yeah, or so. taken off of lists. Well, whereas John Carpenter, even though he can be a seem, seem like a dick, difficult person, he knows how to play the politics and Dan O'Bannon yeah. had never had any interest in playing the politics of Hollywood. So this work on star Wars, you know, it was, it paid the bills. You know, he, he got a, a job for three months and paid the bills, but it didn't exactly have like Hollywood knocking down his door to give him more work. So I'm going to take a little side note on, on this. Cause I want to talk, take a minute to retrace just where O'Bannon is at this time. So he'd made dark star. Uh, that was a film that he had hoped would launch his career but like we discussed last week, it opened to little to no fanfare. It closed as quickly as it opened. And then he spent months in Paris working on Dune only for that to fail as well. But then he notices how his old collaborator, John Carpenter, had started to become recognized as a hot up and coming director, even before Halloween. His follow-up to Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, had opened at the Cannes Film Festival and was a pretty decent hit. So it made, a, it made John Carpenter kind of a director to watch. And Obana would later say, he said, this is a quote from him, Carpenter would call me up and got a big boost over rubbing it in my face and he that he threw me overboard and he was doing just fine. It was sheer cruelty. So there's kind of a, a weird 
thing between them. You know, there's a rivalry between them. And at this point, John Carpenter's winning, honestly, because yeah. <laughs> he's at least had some success. And O'Bannon, by the way, did begrudgingly go to the Assault on Precinct 13 premiere because John Carpenter invited him probably maybe to rub it in his face. Or maybe this is all just O'Bannon projecting because this is from his I was about to say, it's possible that John Carpenter was being a douche, but it's also very possible that Dan O'Bannon just, yeah, like you said, is projecting. Like yeah, he seems to have a hate on for most people yes he does uh so but he went to it and he hated assault on precinct 13 uh he just thought that john carpenter was he thought it was mean-spirited and he was like you know he he said john carpenter just didn't like seemed to not like people in his movies because they were treated so cruelly in his movies which is so funny because i have because of last week and this week i mean i feel like we find dan o'bannon doesn't seem to like people very much so (laughs) it doesn't seem to like most people for sure it's just so interesting to me that these are like i I don't know these are his things i think they're both kind of grumpy dudes and (laughs) but at some point it's not everybody else it's you yes exactly if there is a common denominator in all of the issues that you have with everyone and that common denominator is you yeah uh, <laughs> so at the same time all this is happening he was suffering from an awful wrenching pain just below his navel because we discussed this a little bit last week during the filming of dark star he was hospitalized and misdiagnosed with appendicitis but even removing his appendix didn't help and it wasn't correctly diagnosed with as crohn's disease until 1980 uh, but he'd already spent years being tormented by the illness, which if you know anything about Crohn's disease, it, it completely disrupts the normal process of digestion. It just leaves you in immense pain. So the simple act of eating terrified him because yeah. just eating could bring on this incredible pain in his stomach, uh, which, I mean, you can't blame him for kind of being grumpy all the time when you're in pain that much because there is no cure for Crohn's disease either. You can do things to alleviate some of the symptoms, changing your diet, but there's no cure for it. You live with it for the rest of your life. So he, he couldn't really, he couldn't eat without it like hurting. A, a simple trip to the bathroom for him could potentially mean hours of pain, not to mention the humiliation of it, the, the mental strain on you. And this whole thing, it made him very nervous about traveling or even being far away from a bathroom, which, which makes it very hard when you're a filmmaker who, you know, needs to travel for work and stress made his condition worse. So the pain in his stomach was always on his mind, but what he didn't realize is that it would eventually serve as the inspiration for one of the best ideas that Dan O'Bannon ever had for a movie. So I I think I can see where we're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, It's that seated dumb and dumber. (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. another wonderful contribution by dan o'bannon to the world of cinema <laughs> he is actually the the pseudonym of peter ferrelli there you go <laughs> so she said and o'bannon are they're toying with their script pulling from lovecraft pulling they're, they're pulling from a lot of things like uh o'bannon has been quoted as saying i don't steal from anyone i steal from everyone so he's he's <laughs> pulling from Lovecraft from uh, it, the terror from beyond, which is a 1950s sci-fi movie. That's pretty cool. And uh, pulled very heavily from Mario Bava's planet of the vampires. Their script had a, a work, a crew of kind of working class astronauts, all actually male in the original script who are returning to earth when they're sidetracked by a message from a room, from a remote planet. So they're, they've got reports that there might be an alien life form on the planet. So they send a small team to investigate 
And then it's there that they find an ancient looking abandoned spacecraft. And inside the spacecraft, they find a room of egg-like shells with spidery looking little creatures. One of them jumps out and attaches to the face of the astronaut. So they, they've already got all of this stuff in their script at this point. This is actually one of, one of Shusette's major contributions to the script. He imagined a creature that operated like, there's a type of a wasp that latches itself onto a spider and uses it as a host to plant an egg. What? It's it's wild. I, I, I watched footage of it on, on YouTube. Uh, he, he describes like watching a documentary, like a nature documentary and yeah. seeing it. He was saying there was like this grub that was under, like hidden, hides under a piece of bark and it's sitting there. And then the insect slowly walks over and it's like walking over the bark. And he said, you even see it stop and it like backs up. All of a sudden this needle comes out and it just shoves this needle all the way through the bark and into the grub below it and ejects its eggs. And he said that was just like super freaky. (laughs) Super freaky because eggs are inside of another creature now. And there's even, I even watched some like, um, like time-lapse footage of this caterpillar that had had the eggs implanted in it. And you just see these little larvae start to burst out of it. So that's just their weird life cycle it's fucking terrifying bugs are gross can, can we po- <laughs> can we post that on yeah i'll find it again it's, it's out there because that's uh, messed yeah. up man <laughs> so he that's where he gets that's where Shusette gets the idea only wow. of course the alien's life cycle is accelerated but that allowed it to change shape after it enters the ship it's sort of ingenious i mean uh the fact that it hadn't been done before is is wild to think of now but it's a really genius idea of a, of a way to get an alien inside of a spaceship yeah so Shusette gave him, he, he told him his idea of using this wasp as inspiration and O'Bannon listened to it, mulled it over. And then that night he wakes up in the middle of the night. Remember, he's still sleeping on a, a on Shusette's couch. He walks over to Shusette's bedroom, knocks on the door and proposes an idea. You know, he, he'd been thinking this over and all of a sudden Shusette's idea and, a, and another idea of his kind of clicked together. And this is an idea that would eventually be one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. So O'Bannon comes to Shusette and he says, the monster bursts out of his stomach. <laughs> so he explained to Shusette that the alien not only lays its, he- its egg inside of the human, but it grows inside and emerges as a baby violently bursting out of its host. And that idea, of course, was very personal for O'Bannon because that's what his Crohn's disease felt like. And O'Bannon also very specifically wanted it to be a man that got infected. Uh, he, he specifically wanted to take the trope that John Carpenter had used, uh, the idea of a, a woman uh, as your victim, and break it. He said, quote, having the victim in a horror movie always be a woman was a cheap shot. I always imagine the director jerking off. Oh, I can't wait to see that woman get chopped to pieces. No, I want to see a man get it because I knew it would make the men uneasy. So he's aiming this movie towards men in the audience because that's who is typically watching like a horror movie, you know, at this time in, in, the, in the late 1970s. And he wanted them to feel freaked out by seeing a man get victimized on screen. Yeah, it's weird. He he talks a little bit about wanting to avoid like the the final girl phenomena, but uh, it is interesting. I mean, Ripley still kinds of ends up in that way, but she's certainly more resourceful. And yeah, I mean, but, but again, that wasn't his. This is early on in his script, and at this point, Ripley is not written as a woman. Oh, that's true. Uh, Rip, yeah. Well, Ripley was never written as a woman. Uh, but in his original version of the script, he specifically had an all male crew because. Of this very reason, he wanted to see the men be the ones running from the monster. 
Wow. So that chest burster scene, the iconic chest burster scene, that was the first major decision that O'Bannon made that helped to make the film an what would become an iconic one. I mean, there there are it will we'll discuss that scene in, in detail here in a bit, but it is one of the most famous movie scenes in history. So oh, like yeah, coming up with that idea, that's step one to like this movie being the, the iconic film that it is. The second decision that he made that would turn out to be incredibly important to the making of this film was to pick H.R. Giger to design the creature. This is a pretty bold move. I mean, if you've seen Giger's paintings, the ones that we described earlier, you would understand. I mean, they're very obscene. They're very off-putting. Uh, they look like nothing like any movie monster that's ever been created. So in the middle of writing the script, O'Bannon calls Giger, explains to him, and Giger doesn't speak very good English, so he's like kind of overly articulating his words as he's speaking to Giger. Uh, the, he's telling him the general outline of the movie, and then he sent Giger a package that included a check for $1,000 and some sketches by Ron Cobb. That was, remember, that his one of his production designers on Dark Star, uh, some sketches that Ron Cobb and O'Bannon had done along with a list of stuff that he wanted designed. And although the, the final designs were fully Giger's. I mean, if you've seen Giger's work and then you see the designs on Alien, they, those are those are his. But it's very obvious when you start looking at what, what O'Bannon was doing on this film, even before there was a director attached, that he had a very real vision of what he wanted this movie to look like. Like when he's sending these notes to Giger, he's describing the temple where the ship held the alien egg as ancient, primitive, and cruel. Uh, he told Giger that he wanted to see the alien in three different forms, the first of which he described as a small octopoidal creature. And then the third version, the full-grown monster, he described in his note to Giger, he just says it as a, quote, profane abomination. That's the only description <laughs> wow. he gave to Giger. <laughs> and, and Giger ran with it. And, and nailed every single version. <laughs> yeah. He did. They are well, all terrifying. <laughs> they are. And and the, the producers didn't quite get it. Even that thousand dollars, like the producers were supposed to send that. That was kind of their deal when they were trying to sign Giger on was like, Hey, you know, we'll go ahead and send you a thousand dollars now to start doing some sketches. And the producers didn't want to do it because they didn't really believe in the idea of having Giger on it. So O'Bannon wrote that check out of his personal account. Wow. And sent him a thousand dollars. The producers actually suggested the monster be an oversized, deformed baby. Um, and O'Bannon told Giger, he's like, yeah, I told him, but then I was just like, you know, I mean, here's the idea that they have, but just kind of do what you want with it. <laughs> so he didn't really push it. Like he's like, Yeah, I'll I'll forward that message on to to Hans. Right. And, <laughs> and then and then I've done my job. I've done I've done my part. Then right. whatever he brings back is whatever he brings back. With Giger, like the cool part is, is that like biomechanical stuff you're talking about. Like, even if you look at with like, uh, uh, the best example would be like the space jockey in, yeah. in the film is just like, it's like he's grafted into the seat or whatever. That's like totally a Giger thing. Where does the tech end and the biologic biology begin on that? O'Bannon, like he, he had like specific ideas, but, but the craftiest part of this is, is like, he did seem to be willing to work with everybody. For instance, they talk about uh, the face hugger. You know, he had described it, like you said, like kind of like an octopus-like creature or something. And Giger sends over the art. And uh, he, he tells the story that they actually had to go to LAX to pick up the art, like from customs, because they got it. 
And they were all like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> they had no idea what was going on with these paintings. They had to like personally go and say like, no, it's for a movie and like explain everything to get it out of customs. He said, you know, Giger had like one thing design. The biggest part of his design that he liked was the thing. He said it was like more flat, but it had these fingers instead of like tentacles, like what he had envisioned. And but he thought the fingers just look like the creepiest thing in the world. And he said, "All yeah, right, no matter knuckles what, on them." Yeah, he was like, "No matter what happens from here, I'm gonna use that. Like that has to make it in the movie. That is the creepiest thing." So it's not even till later when like Ridley Scott's on board that they finish up the design of it because like oh, Scott has ideas about like like kind of the shape of what it would look like. But Obana actually Obana actually seems to negotiate it with the you know he he ends up taking a part of what Scott liked and then taking Giger's design. He goes in it and, and this is later on, you know, in the, the making of the film, but he draws out himself. Like Obana draws up the pictures in with Ron Cobb, like sitting in the room. Like he draws up the faces and takes Giger's painting and copies it in detail and draws up the face hugger all himself. This is all O'Bannon. And uh, yeah, remember he's an artist by, you know, that's his background. Yeah. And so it's just crazy. Just like how much work he put into it. So he, he draws this whole thing up and, and he brings it to Scott. And it's like, this look good. And he's like, yep, that's it. He even had a uh, Rod Cobb just for the, the added thing to it that he wanted it to be so detailed that the skeletal structure underneath, like when you see it from the bottom, that it would make sense. So he had Rod Cobb actually come in and like design like what the bones would look like. Yeah. Cause uh, well, remember Ron Cobb is, is a illustrator who is, he, he was very concerned with things being scientifically accurate. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So that was, that was a really cool part. I thought just that. Just well, yeah. Cause idea. I think Giger's original face hugger was like huge. It was really big and it had this big long like tail. that was like a, like a spiral that would, so he would spring out of the, of the, uh, the egg and latch on. But it like, it was like bigger than a dude's head. It was really large. So that, but so, you know, even though he has a singular vision, he, he worked, you know, when they, they came back with notes on things to change, he would change them accordingly. You know, it wasn't like he was like, no, this is like how I'm going to do it. And if you don't like it, you know, you can stuff it, but he, I figured we owed it to him for as grumpy as we make him sound. Sometimes he was like negotiating these things out and taking different ideas and putting them. I mean, even from the color of the thing, he talks about, you know, when he got the design down, he took it to the sculptors and they made like a clay version of the face hugger and uh, they did a molding, but they hadn't colored it yet. He had always pictured it like green, like reptilian. And uh, as he and Scott were like looking at it, there was something away. He said it was just like that weird flesh tone to it. And uh, he said he he was like talking to Scott and like, man, we should just leave it just like this. This is kind of weirder. Yeah. Like nothing's been done like this before. <laughs> well, in terms of the face hugger, the thing that stuck out to me uh, is when they go in to initially examine it and it's laid out on the table and they start lifting parts. And I, to me, and I mean, I've seen this movie before, but just this time watching it was just like, that looks fucking real. That's because it's, <laughs> it's a bunch of, so a bunch of oysters. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Man, man. Wow. What a... They they well, yeah they didn't have the, you know, the, the technology great. for prosthetic that was that good didn't really exist at the time so yeah that's a bunch of like seafood and shit that's wow in there. yeah oh man that looks <laughs> I, yeah I clearly didn't know but that looks great 
I love, I love how, uh, I know we're going to get to it, but just this with like, you're talking about some of those special effects, just how loose they are with some of these ideas, just even uh, to hear him talk about Ash later on. Uh, Scott's just like, he's like, we don't have a tech, the technology or, you know, like what's it going to take to make something look really futuristic and robotic. And it's just like, I don't know, let's just stuff it full of noodles and glass spheres <laughs> And, uh, he's like, that just looks so advanced. I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with the designs in the works and Giger on board, O'Bannon and Shusette finish the script. They send it back to Roger Corman and he offers them $750,000 for it this time, which O'Bannon thought was a pretty generous offer. I mean, that's a lot of money from coming from Roger Corman, but Shusette thought that they could shop it around. See, Star Wars had just opened and it, it was a big hit. Uh, let's say, <laughs> uh, which meant Some that studios would say were, it's successful. It's a successful film. So <laughs> that meant the studios were more keen to buy a sci-fi project. And the fact that Corman had jumped on to buy it so quickly made him think that, Hey, other studios who might offer us more would probably do that too. And so right. kids, you've, you're now finding out that if it weren't for George Lucas, all of your favorite movies wouldn't exist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not that's not untrue <laughs> but so alan ladd jr the executive at 20th century fox who had greenlit star wars was happened to be looking for another space epic he had hired a trio of filmmakers to come up with a darker sci-fi movie one that kind of married sci-fi with horror and those filmmakers were named david geiler gordon carroll and walter hill together known as brandywine Productions. so of the three hills is probably the name that uh, our listeners might recognize uh, before this, he was known for writing hard-edged screenplays for movies like The Getaway and The Drowning Pool. He would later go on to direct stuff like The Warriors, 48 Hours, and Red Heat. Uh, Hill and Geiler had sold themselves to Fox, uh, had sold Brandywine Productions to Fox as like they were writers who could punch up a script and get rid of the filler. So that was kind of their thing. It's like, you hire us to produce this. We're going to take a screenplay that has a good hook maybe, but isn't quite ready to go into production and we're going to fix it and we're going to make it a viable box office success. Nice. It's a good so gig one day if, a guy good named, gig if you can get it. Yeah. I mean, and because especially with Hill, he had the background, he had, he had written several movies that had been successful. So one day a guy named Mark Haggard, who, who was an old USC friend of O'Bannon's visited Hill in their office at Brandywine Productions and dropped off a copy of the alien script. And he's like, you should, read this and you should, you know, this, you can, should consider directing this film. So Hill, Hill didn't know who O'Bannon and Shusett were, uh, but he was looking for a sci-fi movie because that's what Fox wanted. So he took it home and read it and he got a, about a quarter of a way into it and he stopped reading to call Geiler. He told Geiler, he's like, this script is kind of terrible, but there's this really great scene about a third of the way in where an alien incubated inside of a person bursts out of his stomach. <laughs> so he found that that chest burster scene alone was an, enough. That was worth building on. And that was worth working on the script because he's like, I had never seen anything like this before. To his credit. I mean, you know, that's like one of the most memorable movie scenes of all time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So o O'Bannon and Shusett signed a deal with Brandywine, but there was a bit of tension. Be let's go. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say Hill and, and Guiler are also another couple of grumpy dudes who are involved in the production of this movie. <laughs> they uh, Hill is, a, is he's, he seems difficult as well. 
very yeah. set in his ways. It, definitely in the commentary stuff and interviews I saw, uh, O'Bannon does not like Hill. Like no, he, 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 does he not. thinks he's like a dickhead pretty much. I mean, he kind of comes across as one, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I like Hill as a, as a filmmaker. I like some of his movies a lot, but uh, yeah. Uh, so there was some tension because Hill and Geller, they started making changes to the script, which is uh, again, their job, <laughs> but uh, Shusette and O'Bannon were not happy with this. Shusette would later say in, in an interview they weren't good at making it better or in fact at not making it even worse. So, uh, but Hill and Guyler, they had some significant, they added some significant elements to the story, including the character of Ash. That character did not, did not exist in uh, O'Bannon's original version of the script. Hmm. They went through eight different drafts of the script. Uh, and a lot of those rewrites concentrated heavily on the Ash subplot, but also on making the dialogue more natural, uh, which I think they, did a superb job at personally yeah i was wondering because there's a couple moments where i was like is that scripted that sounds so off the cuff that that comes from i think hill's script and also the direction of the film because there's a lot of this like cool overlapping dialogue that's very like yeah. robert altman-esque where people yeah. are talking you have to kind of decide on who you're going to listen to uh, robert altman was very well known for doing that and steven spielberg does it uh, he does it in jaws a good bit uh mm -hmm. and in close encounters but yeah some of, some of the people makes it said feel that more the, natural you know very some of the dialogue in the original i think I, I think it was hill that described it kind of as well somebody had described it as poetic and, and in some interview hill said no it was pretentious and obscure but i don't know obana didn't like any of this like obana no. was was unhappy with this he 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 talked about like how hard he worked to not give psychological profiles to all of these characters and to uh he, he said you know you're tempted to give these things in good movies you, you see this all the time he said except for one thing it always bores the hell out of me except it's so much it has bearing on the situation at hand i he, he, quote i didn't want to stop and tell life stories of these characters because i didn't give a rat's ass i cared about <laughs> the monster that was going to kill them so i didn't do any of that <laughs> and, and his dialogue was like stuff shouldn't be there that wouldn't be just natural yes and no conversation they're real people in a real situation with real history it doesn't matter why they're there who gives a shit <laughs> this is, this i'm is not so, sure i agree with that but <laughs> but o'bannon that's how o'bannon is and he hated he hated ash like he thought that that was stupid he did not think much of a robot being there he calls it the the russian spy treatment he says it's like fantastic <laughs> voyage he says it's annoying he says, why does there always have to be a Russian spy? He says, it's a common tension device. He describes it as like, you know, in Fantastic Voyages, like you're getting to go do all of this awesome stuff, but then you find out there's a Russian spy. He says, quote, it's an inferior idea from inferior minds that in this movie is well acted and well directed. Fortunately, <laughs> it does not take up too much time. Well, <laughs> Ron Chusset in later interviews would say that it was one of the better contributions to the script. He said he thought it was a genius idea adding this the Ash character. And maybe that's just Shuset being much more neutrally or or more pol playing politics a little bit more or a little bit better than O'Bannon does, but Shuset seems to really like the idea and thought it was a, an excellent idea to add the Ash character to the story. Yeah, I just uh I had to make sure we cut. It just feels like so O'Bannon 
<laughs> that's a direct quote from the commentary. It's an inferior idea from inferior minds that's well acted and well directed. Fortunately, it doesn't take up too much time. <laughs> I kind of love how cranky he is, honestly. Uh, I love it. He's he's a fun guy to watch in interviews too, because he's like if you see him in later interviews, like where he's older, he's got the white hair and the glasses, and he's always wearing like a bow tie and suspenders. Uh, right. he's, a, he's a character. So Walter Hill takes the idea to Alan Ladd. And he's like, this is a, this is B movie material, but if we dress it up with a movie production values, we could fool the audience into thinking it's an A movie. That was kind of his pitch to Alan Ladd and Alan Ladd went for it. But with one caveat, he said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it big. He wanted alien to look like a blockbuster. He essentially wanted another star Wars. And just like that, this little monster movie that was supposed to star a guy in a rubber suit became a $10 million event film for a major studio. And this was a huge deal for Dan O'Bannon for his career, as well as for his health. Because 1977, when this is all going down, had been very tough for him health-wise. His Crohn's disease had sent him in and out of the hospital multiple times that year. And, you know, things are looking up finally for Dan. You know, with Alien, he was given screenwriting credit on the film, despite the fact that the shooting script was written by Hill and Geiler, but he also negotiated to where he had a say in the look of the film. And in doing that, he was able to bring in his old co-workers from Dune, uh, illustrator Chris Foss, Mobius, and Ron Cobb. Yeah, I love the addition of Ron Cobb. I mean, you know, uh, we'll not forget that he's from Dark Star as well. Uh, but he had also done apparently uncredited work on Star Wars for like creature designs. Like, uh, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, just uh, interesting, like creature concepts and stuff like that. So he was kind of blazing his old trail in the industry there. And he seems to be another guy that uh, O'Bannon bounced ideas off of pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah um, they, they seem to be big collaborators more than just co like i'm gonna hire you to design like they they bounced ideas off each other a lot it seemed yeah i mean like for it's it's like the acid blood that's ron cobb that was ron cobb yep yeah he had just genius uh, idea yeah obana was like basically stuck at this point of why don't they just kill him you know, why don't they just kill the alien? Like they, he didn't want, he, he thought it was too tropey to like include this like bulletproof monster. He thought that, that right. he wanted it to seem real, like biological, like this is a real thing. And so, yeah, you could shoot it up and it would die. But like, why wouldn't you do that? And besides the fact that these are space truckers, so they're oh, just well, walking around with guns. aliens. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> what they do with aliens. But he, uh, but yeah, he he said he was talking to Rod Cobb about it. Rod Cobb just came up with the ideas like, what if you just had a blood for or you know acid for blood, and it would just like burn through the ship if it, like melts metal. And uh, yeah. hey, it's like Obed is just like, yes, yes, that's yeah. perfect. It's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. So now you don't kill it. So O'Bannon's vision for Alien was similar to what Yodorowsky wanted to do on Dune, which was you put a bunch of great artists in a room together and let them trade ideas and bounce things off each other, you know? And the plan was for Ron Cobb to design the spaceships using the latest cutting edge science. Remember, as we discussed in our Dark Star episode, Cobb was a designer who liked his sci-fi designs to seem functional. Uh, only this time, the budget would allow them to use more than, you know, just egg cartons and ice cube trays in the design. But they still saw the aesthetic, much like in Dark Star, as dirty, industrial, rusted, you know, a, that used space look that had never really been seen before. Giger's style, on the other hand, had no basis in science. He did not care at all if his alien looked like it could biologically exist. 
Uh, it didn't have eyes. Like, who cares? G- Giger wasn't worried about the science of it. He just wanted to create something that looked scary. He could give a shit if it's something that is based in science. I even thought, I, I think I saw somewhere where he he like even had eyes at first and then took them off. I was like, nah, it's going to be creepier if it sniffs you out. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and his designs for the alien were based on his painting uh, Necronom 4. If you have, Google that, if you want, and you'll you'll see an alien xenomorph. <laughs> That's what's in that painting. He he made several conceptual paintings of the creature before settling on the final version, and then he sculpted the creature himself. Although the creature's head was created by a guy named Carlo Rimbaldi, who'd worked on the aliens on Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Carlo Rimbaldi is a kind of a, a legendary effects guy, and would eventually win an Oscar for his work on this film. And he stuck pretty close to Giger's design, but he did make some modifications to the, the head that would allow him to turn it into this fully articulated head. It had, you know, hinges for the mouth, cables, and, you know, for allowing the inner the inner mouth to extend, things like that. And then they covered the whole thing in slime, and that slime was actually just KY jelly. <laughs> Which is yeah. why it seems like your mom at some points. Like, it just... Just, she's always just covered in KY. That's so. There was a joke. There was a joke there. There was your mama joke somewhere in there. I, I mean, dro- he's in I dropped space. In space, no one can hear you spank it. I was gonna go in space. No one can hear you cream. Oh <laughs> yeah. I see what you're oh that man, that wins. Yeah yeah. yeah. And well you're, done. And you're well the done. writer comedian here. I'll right? take the Come silver. On. I'll take the silver medal. That's fine. <laughs> Wait, why does that mean I got? Well, uh, yeah, I kind of gave up yeah. on that. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, but yeah, the, the the cool part here is that the Giger style, it's it's fantastic, like just the way this thing looks. Uh, a lot of, like uh, Scott was saying, the interiors and stuff of those ships are all Rod Cobb. He actually gives credit to him for like mm-hmm. most of that. And uh, But then the Giger stuff is like anything alien is Giger and like pretty much anything human is like Rod Cobb did a lot yeah. of that design work. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Chris Foss did a lot of um, concept. His his kind of whole thing was conceptual design of the exteriors of the spaceships. Mm. Ron Cobb did a lot of the interiors and figuring out the design of how this could actually the spaceship could actually function. Whereas Chris Foss, like he he was a sci-fi illustrator. He did sci-fi novel covers, you know, and so that was kind of his thing was creating the the stuff on the outside of the Nostromo. Yeah, and and my apologies. I'm like bouncing all back and forth with like jumping into the actual production of the film itself, but instead of just the designs where you're you're really talking about. But uh, anyway, I, I I just remember reading a bunch about this, and just it was really cool. Obama was here too, though. Like he had ideas, you know. Once they actually got into designing of like. Cobb had done all straight hallways, so like Obama was thinking of the tension of the thing. It was talking about. Uh, he made him go redesign the, he suggested redesigning the hallways to have like quarters. He's like, you want blind spots. So you don't know what's, what's around the turn. Like you got to have that stuff. It's a great idea. So things are looking up for O'Bannon, you know, but being O'Bannon, he he is a pessimist at heart. He always kind of expected things to go wrong. He was worried that the studio would change his script or try to stop him from using Giger's designs. And those things kind of did happen. (laughs) The studio started to get nervous. Uh, Hill and Geiler are already changing the script, but the the studio, they started to get unsure about this because 
as even as we'll talk about the casting in a bit, but even as it started to get cast, like none of the people who are in it are like big movie stars. Uh, although if they had looked back at, you know, Star Wars, nobody in that was a movie star either. The writers were unproven and those Giger designs were not exactly family friendly. They were like, how are parents who took their kids to Star Wars going to feel about uh, a monster with a head that looks like a big black dick? Well, <laughs> families today have Pornhub, so that's just common. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have and, to worry and about there's studio. lots of families on Pornhub, so... <laughs> Well, step go. families, you know, really. Yeah, what are you, a lot of step families. What are you doing, step Todd? <laughs> but one, but one of them, but one of them's, one of them's away on business a lot. <laughs> so the studio also so had I've a director told. problem here. Uh, Walter Hill left the film once he realized that he's like, there's going to be a lot of special effects in this movie. And he was kind of always bored of the idea of doing special effects work. I don't know how he initially didn't think this was going to be an effects heavy movie when he read the script, but that was his reasoning for leaving. But there was probably another reason. One that he never really had a lot of faith in the project. It didn't seem, Uh, he never really seemed to be that into it. Plus he had another movie that he wanted to work on. He had another movie that it was kind of in development that he wanted to work on. So he left to go work on that project. That project would end up being Southern comfort, which is a, a really good movie, uh, but it's not alien. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, all right. <laughs> Although maybe a Walter Hill version of alien would not have been, it would not have been this movie at, at all, you know? True. So Fox goes looking for other directors and several of them turn the project down until eventually the job was accepted by a newcomer by the name of Ridley Scott. I'm sure you know that name. Uh, he's incredibly famous now, but at the time he was relatively new. Uh, Ridley Scott's an English director. He'd gotten his start in filmmaking by making television commercials, was very well known as a commercial director. And he had recently made his film debut with the 1977 film, The Duelist, which won the award for best debut film at the Cannes Film Festival. Supposedly this guy Sanford Lieber said I had seen like had seen that movie who worked for like 20th Century Fox London Division. And he was the first person that started like passing script stuff over to Scott with with the director stuff started to go up in the air, like uh, had been had been pushing it over to him. Well, I mean, it's funny because there's nothing about the duelist that makes you think this guy needs to do a sci-fi movie, you know, uh, because the duelist is about like, it's about two duelists in like Napoleonic France. There's nothing uh, okay. fantastic about it at all. And it had not been like a big hit at the box office, but like we said, it, it had won some acclaim, some critical acclaim and some awards and it had caught Hollywood's attention because it was because of how it looks because of this flashy aesthetic, because there's one thing about Ridley Scott. Uh, I'm, I'm hit or miss on Ridley Scott as a director. Like, I think he can be very, very good, but I think he can be bad as well. But there's one thing, good or bad, regardless of of how I feel about the film, uh, one of his films as a whole, is that they always look fantastic. Uh, And that's because, again, he got his start in in commercials and he had a background in that kind of stuff. He, he had to be able to tell stories in a visual sense in, you know, 30 seconds at a time, you know, there are Ridley Scott movies. Like obviously this is a very high point, this movie, but something like legend, I do not like legend at all. I think legend is very boring uh, and not a good movie, but I think it looks gorgeous. 
And that's kind of that visual style is what caught Hollywood's attention. That's what made people think of him for even movies like this that didn't seem to be, you know, in the wheelhouse of what he had made before. And Ridley Scott, you know, he actually, after the success of Star Wars, he actually saw where the tide was turning and he wanted to work on a space film next. So when Fox came to him and offered him Alien, he jumped on the opportunity. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like Ronald Chassette tells the story that like when, when Scott was approached and now the, at this point, um, they'd supposedly been through potential directors. Scott says he was fifth on the list. Uh, Any idea was, who the other ones were? Yeah. Uh, some of the names I saw were Peter Yates, Jack Clayton, well, obviously Walter Hill. There was a, a point Dan O'Bannon was considered for the directing role. And uh, Robert Aldrich, uh, who did, uh, I just watched the other day, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and he did that oh, movie. Yeah. And I, I thought it was fantastic. It was my first time seeing it, and I really, really loved that movie. But one thing that drove me nuts is I saw that he was, he was actually the closest, supposedly, out of those names before Walter Hill. And uh, they said that he lost the job because he, uh, they came up to him talking about the design of the, the face hugger, and... <laughs> Aldrich, they said Aldrich just shrugged and said, I think we'll just put some entrails on the guy's face. It's not like anybody's going to remember that thing once they left the theater. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He clearly did not have a grasp on the screenplay at all. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. But but Ridley Scott, according to Ronald Shushet, and this is interesting because there is a story, and I think you have it in your notes too to to talk about later, but like of, of O'Bannon showing them Texas Chainsaw, but Chassette tells a story uh, that says uh, the first thing that Ridley Scott told him when they were talking to him about the job, because uh, Chassette, you know, he was co-writer, but he's also a producer on here. He said that Scott said, I want to make a straightforward, unpretentious, riveting thriller. I'm thinking Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, or even brilliant B-level stuff like Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw. Uh, he said, and he's like, he's like, but I want it to look, he said, quote, and I want it to look and I'm going to do this. It's going to be those things and it's going to look like 2001. Yeah, and, that's uh, awesome. What a great approach. Yeah. yeah. Great approach. And he said, uh, and he said just the way he talked about it, he was like, I knew he could do it. And, yeah. and I I didn't, you know, I, I, he said he had seemed like the duelist and thought maybe this would be like a pretentious guy, but he said that he and O'Bannon, and uh, Scott, throughout the making of the movie, would sit and watch all kinds of scare movies because they wanted to learn, like it was important to get the timing down. And and that's something we'll talk about a little bit later too. But, uh, you know, for all those who doubt Alien as a horror movie, I mean, that's 100% the thought process that... Are there alien that, doubters? Alien... I don't know. Doubters? I just think, I, I don't know. Like when people think of like favorite horror movies, I don't know that like Alien for casual viewers would be like a first that would come I don't out. know man yeah. I mean I mean I think people get caught up in the fact that it's set in space and, and they're like oh it's a sci-fi no it's a horror like it can be fucking both you know yeah. it can be a sci-fi <laughs> and a horror movie and it is both and it's not the first or the last movie to be both a horror movie and a sci-fi movie so that's like you don't have to put it in one or the other and I it's could a be haunted just house that movie up. it's a haunted house movie that happens to be set in space oh yeah yeah, huh, um, I, didn't, I didn't think about it like that. That yeah, that's true. Oh, that's one hundred percent the way he'll pitch Harry Dean Stanton. But we'll talk about that later. But like the, uh, <laughs> um, 
yeah, I mean, O'Bannon and Shushit, sh- 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 uh, they, uh, <laughs> they 100% were thinking of it with horror. So I think Scott sold them that he also was coming into this like, nah, man, more this is a, a horror movie than a sci-fi movie. Yeah. And he's like, it's a B, it's a B movie, a B horror movie. And we're going to make it look like 2001. Yeah. And, which uh, is, you know, which is again, how Hill initially sold it to, uh, to Alan Ladd, and and even though Hill is no longer a director, he's still a producer of this. Brandywine Productions is still producing, so Hill is actually still involved as well. So here we are. We've got we've got Ridley Scott, we've got a script, we've got H.R. Giger. Ever all all these things are coming into place to create this movie, but now we've got to get a cast. We've got to get seven human beings to live on the Nostromo. And that's the story for next week, guys. Oh, all right. We're going two episodes on Alien. Oh, how First could time you we've not? ever done it? It's one it of the greatest be, movies ever made. It may or hear or your may bullshit, not be the last Todd. time we ever do it. I, <laughs> no, I, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, we're, we decided to go two episodes on this one just because there's there's a lot of story with Alien. And if we tried to cram all this into one episode, we would either A, not be doing the movie, the service that it deserves, or B, doing like a four hour episode we're not going to do that to you so we're going <laughs> to release half of this now and then yeah who do you story. think we are Zack snyder <laughs> speaking of which go listen to our bonus episode it's out yeah. now yeah <laughs> if you've wondered where the contempt in todd's voice comes from <laughs> you can you can look at our bonus episode on the justice league Zack snyder <laughs> justice league. <laughs> so next week we will be continuing our story of dan o'bannon and Ridley Scott's Alien uh, for part two of this particular episode. I don't even know how to refer to this at this point. <laughs> it's, a, it's uncharted territory, boys. Yep, we've never done a two-parter, but here we are. Mm. So everyone, everyone who listened to like two and a half hours on Texas Chainsaw is like, maybe they should have thought of this idea earlier. Yeah, <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see if we do this in the future. But this one, as me and Gary were writing up notes, we're just like, this is a lot of fucking notes, dude. Like this is a lot of information. And I know that there's stuff that we're not even going to hit. <laughs> As so. we're recording this, it's on Easter Sunday. And my wife is trying to get me to go to this Easter lunch. And I'm like, I have 24 pages of notes in front of me right now. That's like mine and Justin's combined. Did you skip out on Easter lunch? No, no, I ended up going and I just came back and I was like, I got everything in position. Uh, well, this is inside baseball for everyone, but Justin usually sends me his notes that I use as a framework for my notes to like when it's okay to talk about certain things. And uh, <laughs> it, it's just, it, I don't know. It's a, uh, it, it was a lot of stuff. It's so overwhelming. It's a lot of stuff. There, there's so much alien knowledge out there and we I mean, the still will not cover 50 all years of it. old. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's a lot. Anyway, we'll be back next week to d- continue discussing Alien. And until then, I guess let's tell people where they can, where you guys can be found on the internet. I'm at, this is Gary Horn. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis. I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock. That's Twitter, Instagram, where like us on Facebook, subscribe, rate, review on all your favorite podcasting apps. You can also listen to Gary on This Is Pro Wrestling or on the official NWA YouTube channel on Tuesday nights. Yeah, and you can listen to Todd on Computer Resume, his Star Trek podcast available. Leave it to Justin. Actually, we, can't, on... we can't promote our old shit, but thank nope, you, Justin. I got to do it for you. <laughs> I got to do it for you. Uh, I'm your hype man here. 
And Todd's uh, podcast is now available on uh, most of the major podcasting platforms. It's on Apple now, which is Yay! A, it's know, a big significant step. move forward, Todd. Yes. Congratulations. We're taking steps. We're taking baby steps, but we are taking steps. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next week, fellas. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. In space, nobody has the keys. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I did like that one. That's good. Right. I almost said, "Here's the swimming with bow-legged women." Just not oh, interesting. Uh, which I think yeah. was my sign-off, like on our very first podcast. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I don't know why my brain just went there, but here's to them as well. <laughs> sure. <why not? laughs>